Welcome to Woke Isn't Enough, a podcast created by two women of color who think that it's time to move collectively beyond checking the boxes when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Jess Aiden Lee, and I'm here with my colleague, Fiona Oliphant, and we are the founders of Healing Equity United. Hi, thank you for joining us for this episode of Woke Isn't Enough, and our special guest today is Michelle Leonard. I am so excited to speak with you and hear your wisdom. I'm so thankful you took the time to speak with us today. So Michelle, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you, who you are, um, and your years of activism for the Native community? Okay. Well, good good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me to be a guest on this um, wonderful podcast. Um, I am an enrolled member of the Shinnecock Indian Nation of Southampton, Long Island, New York. I um, have been an activist, I guess you would say, or just a very, very solid cheerleader for my culture and my tribe since I was a little, little girl. Um, I participate in all of our ceremonies and events and um, I remember when we first started our initial youth group, um, I was a member. And it was called the um, SNAC, Shinnecock Native American Cultural Coalition. Believe that, back when I was barely 12 years old, we were having coalitions. And um, as I grew into my teen years, I became very knowledgeable and active in the American Indian movement and all of the things that were happening in the 60s and 70s with Alcatraz and Wounded Knee. And um, fortunately for me, but unfortunately, I guess I went to Wellesley College at the age of 16. So my activism was quickly taken um, a new stage there at Wellesley. And I even brought members of the American Indian movement, such as Dennis Banks, to speak and, um, and perform at Wellesley when I was just a freshman in college. So, wow. <laughs> so yeah, so activism has been, um, has been something I guess I've done and I've heralded. And I had um, Lane Deer, who was an elder, he came and spoke at Wellesley by uh, me organizing and inviting and having him come. And then um, Floyd Crow Westerman came and performed. Um, and he was a, a very renowned native, native uh, artist, uh, singer and performer. So my ways of activism have been going on ever since I can remember, whether it's participating in promoting culture or giving others who are doing um, activist work a platform to to get their work done and for a wider audience to hear all of the atrocities that native people have gone through over the centuries and then at wellesley when i was a um uh, one of their newer recruits i think it was during the time in the 70s when a lot of college campuses were trying to um, diversify their student body and they but had um, only a handful of Native Americans. I think there were three of us. And 
um, Chicanas and Puerto Rianas. And when we all showed up on campus, there wasn't a student body or student group for us to um, unite around. But the college was taking our activities fees, which then go, which then gets disseminated to student groups so they can have activities. So a few of us decided to form a coalition called Mezcla, which means mixture in Spanish, and it became the student activity group for the um, Native Americans, Chicanas, and Puerto Ricans that, who were enrolled at Wellesley in the 70s. And fortunately for us, Mezcla still exists today in 2020. It's taken on more of a Latinx um, presence, um, and I'm sure that evolved merely because of numbers. But now there is a Native American Student Association at Wellesley as well. Oh, I was an activist. I didn't know about that. Yeah, and I, I went, I did my junior year at Dartmouth. So I was very much involved in getting Dartmouth to change the Indian mascot to the pine tree. Um, there have been lots of, of challenges and endeavors that I've been a part of in activism. And, um, and even today, I am working on several fronts. And one is to... Um, rid the word squaw as a place name in a lot of areas and specifically in, a, in an area in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that has had it for quite a while as a street name and a park name. Michelle, so, can you tell us a little bit about why the word squaw, particularly in use for a street name, is offensive to Native folks? Well, it's a, it's a word that was used to demean and denigrate Native women, even back during the frontier days. Um, when, when a person was called a squaw, they were, auto, or a woman, a Native woman, they were automatically put in a lesser than um, position than a white woman. Um, and as it has evolved, the disparaging use of it has continued, um, even to the point now where when there are lots of um, men camps, is what they call them, where all the fracking and all of the um, oil rigging and things go on. Um, when men know that they can treat a woman in a less than position. And squaw tends to be the word that they use to do that. And all of their um, rights and um, desires to be considered a human with um, needing caring and respect just go out the window because if anyone looks at the history of the use of the word and then applies it in a contemporary way, it, it makes it easier for people, especially men, to have that um, attitude that they can do with a woman and with a woman's body, whatever they, whatever they wish. And so to rid that word would add dignity to the stature of Native women. And if a person needs to be called upon and that word no longer exists or is in use, 
then you would just call a person and say, you know, um, sweetheart, lady, loved one, come to me, um, instead of using the word squaw. Thank you for adding some context to that because there's a lot of controversy around the lines of disrespect, cultural appropriation, cultural erasure. So that leads me to a couple of questions. Um, in terms of erasure, Jessica and I have talked about this a, a quite a bit, right? Whenever folks talk about black and brown folks or marginalized communities, it's almost an afterthought. Oh, and indigenous folks too, right? I know we have the phrase BIPOC and indigenous comes right after black, right? But in general terms, can you just talk to us a little bit about this long-term history of erasure of an entire peoples, where it stems from, what it's rooted in, and how it's still showing up today? Well, it's, um, I mean, it stems from a need to um, dominate and, and to um, formulate genocide. Um, if, if, a, if, if a conquering culture can take away all humanity, any references to the, um, the existing culture, their way of life, their languages, um, then it facilitates the ultimate goal, which is genocide. Um, and through that process, by erasing um, facets of, of a culture or a society, then that is ultimately achieved. And so with native people or indigenous peoples in, in almost any, any area, any country, any continent, the, the goal had been to, if, if we could erase them, if we could, um, or not we, but if the people could um, say they no longer exist, then it, um, allowed them to proceed without any guilt or blame in what the resulting um, um, acquisition um, then became. And so with Native people, the erasure continues um, because we, through no fault of their own, have not gone away. We still exist. We're not in the numbers that we were in the past, but we managed to exist. We managed to keep our culture despite all the horrific um, things that befell people who tried to from um, practicing our religion, and especially in the 1800s with the um, revival of the ghost dances in Wavoka, the way that the Calvary and everyone tried to just annihilate tribes who were continuing to, to herald their culture. Um, that allowed for so many massacres that, you know, people don't even speak of, or like the, the largest uh, number of men who were hung in the United States were Dakota warriors, simply because they were protesting what some of the white settlers had done. And, um, and that was ordered by Abraham Lincoln. And so he had um, 38 men hung in, in, in all at the same, in one, 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 um, one event all at the same time. And so, you know, it becomes hard sometimes for us to, to herald someone like Abraham Lincoln, who, quote, freed the slaves and 
played that role in, in, in ridding the country of slavery. But at the same token, this is the man who hung 38 men, um, Dakota men, native men. So again, that's, that's part of an erasure. And then if you bring it even up into, you know, the, the late 1800s with Colonel Pratt and Indian boarding schools, the way to erase us was to stop allowing our language to be spoken. Um, and then, then, you know, you have some tribes who are reclaiming their language and are trying to, to um, teach it. But over the 40 years prior to that, you know, 70 years prior to that, they were always treated as they were a lesser bunch of uh, people versus the tribes that were able to maintain their language. And if you don't have your language then you can't actually be who you say you are, therefore you're erased. And, um, and then there's been government policy, the termination acts of the, um, of, of the mid 1900s. That was just all of a sudden, they just decide you're terminated, you no longer exist. And that was a way to take more land even in the 1900s. And then you have the um, Indian Child Welfare Act that had to be, to be um, pushed through Congress because um, people were taking native children and um, you know, they were you know, figuring out ways and especially the states in the Midwest were figuring out ways to take children away from their native mothers and then put them up for adoption. And so you have this whole generation of children who were adopted out of their culture, which again is another form of erasure. I mean, it, it happened even in Canada with, with what was called the 60s scoop. So, um, so we, we go from the boarding schools where it was, you know, um, if you could, could uh, beat the Indian out of a child or, or um, you know, living up to those, those cliches of, you know, um, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Um, there were there were actual systemic um, policies that were encouraging the that actual result erasure and genocide from you know and and it and it existed in every century since the um, Europeans arrived on these shores. Um, losing of one's language in the Indian boarding schools. I mean. The children, there were, there were lots of children who didn't even make it to the age of 10 that are buried in unmarked graves at some of these boarding schools. And, um, and the ones that were able to survive, survived only because they, they agreed and, and found themselves beaten, tortured into leaving, putting their culture behind and absorbing the, um, the dominant um, desire of learning how to sew or to make wagons or to cook or to do things. And then they were sent out as indentured servants for some of the rich families who were located around where the schools were, the schools existed. And then you have um, the, the whole process of eugenics. I mean, the sterilization of native women in the, um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, and, and, and it was government policy headed by the first George Bush when he was a federal employee for the Department of Interior. I mean, anyone can Google any of those primary source documents where he supported policy that encouraged the um, sterilization of native women. And, and now we're in the pandemic of 2020 and we can see the health disparities that once again are impacting 
um, native people and, you know, at, at five times the rate of anyone else. And it's, you know, people want to say, I, I know there have been others who have, who have coined this phrase, and so I'm paraphrasing them, but they, they say that, um, like, like a lot of the, um, the uh, health professionals or um, statisticians will say, well, it has to do with their race, and because of the, the frailty of, of the race, they're more susceptible to COVID. But it's not. It's the racism and it's the racist policies that have um, forced minorities like indigenous cultures to be um, to have the health disparities that exist that cause um, something like COVID to just sweep uh, their communities. You know, a lot of the tribal nations that, and my own included, um, that uh, that suffered severely and are suffering during COVID don't even have running water in in, in a lot of their homes. And if that's one of the um, one of the requirements to stave off COVID is to wash your hands. I mean, how do you wash your hands for 20 seconds singing happy birthday twice when you don't even have running water? Um, you know, it's, uh, it, I could go on with the ways that a culture like indigenous peoples have, have dealt with erasure. And it's not just here, it's, it's Maori in New Zealand, it's Australia, it's, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, Canada, it's, you know, they're, the indigenous peoples are always erased. And even as other minorities or other isms start to fight and receive um, um, equity, it's still always um, at the neglect of what may have or have been suffered by indigenous peoples. And, um, and so I think I went on and on. No, that was that was really great because it led me to a series of questions. But I will start with the question of what has reclaiming a space in this society and this equity movement meant for you personally and for your fellow activists? And then what can we do, folks who are not indigenous or Native American due to be co-conspirators, like move beyond allyship to um, lift up the value and equity that your community so rightly deserves? Well, I think that one of the things that I'm finding, especially as I do activist work on a continuous basis, is it's kind of like a bell curve. We go up and down, you know, um, and each time that we're going up or coming down, what I find fascinating is the level of ignorance that people have about Native culture and Native history. And it's, it's very um, telling when people don't even know that Natives exist, that there are 570-plus separate and distinct nations that exist in the United States today um, who have a direct relationship with Congress as spelled out in the Constitution. And then when you take that level of understanding or lack thereof, and you break it down into um, um, neighborly or systemic issues that 
can hit right at um, a community, it's important for people to know who are the native peoples in their area. Like one thing that has been become very prevalent is before people will begin a session or a seminar, they'll acknowledge the lands of where they are speaking from or where they are um, and, uh, you know, heralding from. And that's an important um, step because if you can acknowledge whose lands you're you're stepping on you not only are giving that group of respect but you're acknowledging too that those lands were probably never legally obtained by the entity that you are now with and and that's an important recognition also to show allyship because a lot of people do not know how just how much was stolen and continues to be stolen and then when you bring it to a contemporary issue like cultural appropriation, you know, the wearing of say um, headdresses during Halloween or Indian princess costumes. I mean, native nations were not monarchical. So therefore we did not have kings and queens. The only place in the US where there was a king and a queen society is Hawaii. And so, when people start dressing up as these princesses, if you didn't have a king or a queen, you didn't have a princess. And we were not those type of societies where we would put one individual over the welfare of the entire community. And so the same thing with the headdresses. Those things mean their ceremonial meaning to a lot of the cultures. And when you see them at um, um, Co Coachella, you know, or you see them um, being being worn in a in a pride parade, then you wonder, okay, um, that the ism for people to be having pride parades is on the backs of other isms that people had to suffer to get us to a society where having a pride parade is okay. But then when that group decides that we're going to um, um, dehumanize another group by culturally appropriating an outfit or an item, then it just becomes jarbled and, and everyone becomes offending and hurting the, the, the peoples that they wouldn't want that offense or that hurt to be done to themselves. And it also becomes challenging for those of us with children because we teach our children about our culture and when these items are to be worn and by whom, and then to see them used as costumes for non-indigenous people with no sensitivity to their purpose. It's just this perpetuating insult and in, upon insult to our culture and to the peoples that we're trying to be. So those are some ways that, that people could step up and help is to, is to know who in your community, you know, a lot of times people don't even know that they're sitting next to a native person or that they may be engaged in a conversation with the native person. And, um, and that's, you know, also troubling because we exist and we should, you know, people should make the effort to know where and who and in what area um, they, they are, you know, they are existing. Thank you, know? you so much for all of that. One thing that popped out for me because in the dystopian novel, novel that we're living in called 2020, 
quote unquote Indian princesses keep coming up again and again. And you know who I'm talking about. We don't have to mention any specific names, right? And there's um, using the, the name Pocahontas in a pejorative term. Can you once and for all lay down a history lesson as to who Pocahontas was and what happened to her? She was not a willing, loving princess who rode off into the sunset singing to the trees. Right. Can you tell us about this, please? Well, I mean, I can't, I can't really give any more than what most people should know and, and can, can find, um, you know, even in any search. But she was not, um, she was taken against her will. She was a child. Um, and technically, I think, had she been of any other ethnicity, it would have been highly considered abuse child abuse um, of what was done to her. And the way that um, these, these tales are told, um, really, they, it brings such disheartening to, to any Native mo mother um, to think that people would continue to perpetuate <clears throat> a story about a young woman who was taken by a white man to, um, to fulfill this fantasy that uh, European uh, colonizers needed to fulfill during that time. And, um, and then to have it used the way that it's used today out of total disrespect for who she was and what she went through is just, um, you know, it's like, uh, atrocity upon atrocity, just constantly being um, thrown out at Native people. And the fact that, that someone thinks that they can do that to this name and to this person is exactly what I'm trying to say about where Native culture is put in the, the hierarchy of society and the relativeness. I mean, if that were any other ethnicity, people would be screaming from the rafters to put a stop to it. But instead, because it's native, it's okay to disparage. And that is what goes on historically, decades, centuries, one after the other. It's okay to take this young woman off to England and put her through everything that was put through and then have the stories told about how much she loved it and appreciated the way she was treated. And then it's okay to take Native children and give them up for adoption. It's okay to sterilize Native women. It's okay to have an, a, a numerous um, accounting of missing and murdered Indigenous women in cases that just go unsolved. And if it, had, if it was any other group, the level of tolerance would not exist the way it does for Native people. And, and now, you know, you know who is using her name to um, call out a person who should have never claimed Native ancestry or Native heritage in the first place. And we all know that that claim was done for self-gain um, it wasn't done to be in the trenches with the rest of us who have to deal with 
um, family members or tribal communities that are suffering from society's ills like no plumbing, you know, no um, uh, ramp having alcoholism, having dietary dietary issues where diabetes is prevalent in our society. The pers the people who claim and falsely claim native heritage and do it for self gain, th those that we've now labeled pretendians, they do it because um, they're able to acquire a benefit without being part of the culture that is suffering. And now this, this person is using a name of a woman who did suffer to herald and, and attack um, someone who's falsely claiming it and who never suffered. And um, so I guess, you know, that's, that's what I have to say about Pocahontas. Um, you know, there, were, there are lots of pretendians. Um, most of the time, they're called out for who and what they are, from going all the way back to Grey Owl, who was this Canadian who pretended to be native and was given an um, opportunity to be at the Queen's Court in England, all the way to people like, um, um, you know, these professors in academia who are claiming native ancestry, and they really don't but they done it because academia is great for getting grants and fellowships. And if you can falsely claim to be something you're not, then you're, you're, you've got that self gain. Um, you know, you, 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 you're won the position because you, um, your, your only goal and only intent was for your own personal gain, not to really help the people who are suffering in the ethnicity that you're falsely claiming. Thank you. Thank you for laying that out so perfectly. Um, raises another issue because I feel like Jessica and I talk about um, Pocahontas and the real story behind the Disney show, right? But it, it lands differently when you hear a Native person discussing it. So I'd like to ask you, what is it that other folks of color, you know, outside of being general allies or white folks, what can people of color do to lift up um, the community's priorities, the community's needs? You know, you talked about all of the missing Native women, and we know that there was recently legislation passed that finally acknowledge this. We know that there's a recent case in Oklahoma that finally said half of the entire state of Oklahoma belongs to Native folks, right? So, so what can we do as people of color to, to, to shine a brighter light on this? What, what you can do is continue to shine that bright light. Um, you know, when a lot, like for instance, let's take the Washington Redskins. That case was filed in 1992. And it's amazing how many fans would not support getting rid of the word. And a lot of those fans were people of color. Um, and that was extremely disheartening to the original um, activists, you know, Susan Schoen Harjo, because whenever there's a, um, another group that needs allyship. Native people are always there. I mean, as far as Native people, we are the 
only ethnicity that has fought in every war before this country was even a country on behalf of this country or on this land. And so, you know, we fought in the French and, and, and um, English war. The, the, we fought in the wars before the American Revolution. We took sides in the American Revolution. We've been in world. So whenever it comes time for a cause or a fight to be um, embraced, Native peoples are there and on the front lines doing it. But it just seems that when we call out for things, we're told, um, stay in our place. We don't have a problem with it. Um, you know, and, and that's, that is just not hearing um, what we would like um, people of other cultures to, to hear. Um, for instance, you know, when back in the 90s when I was pushing for a, a national holiday for Native Americans, you know, I mean, why not? Why don't we have one? You know, um, there should be a holiday. I mean, granted, now people are, are pushing for um, Indigenous Peoples Day, but it's, but it's at the cost of taking away the Columbus Day. And um, which rightfully so, we should, but it would have been so much more helpful if over the past 40 years, there was more of an allyship from other ethnicities to give native people a national holiday. Um, you know, there is Martin Luther King Day, but there's plenty of native orators or native people who deserve a day as well. And there's never, there just doesn't seem to be um, people non-native, non-indigenous willing to take up that cause or to understand that um, when they achieve that cause, which I said earlier, it's on the backs of others. Um, and, it, and more specifically, the, the people who this country, who were first here, you know. Um, so what can they do? If they see someone at Coachella, call them out, you know? If they see a sports team that's, you know, making fun of, of a, a mascot, you know, call it out, put a stop to it. Um, you know, and that goes from high schools all the way to professional teams. Um, it was very hard to become a fan of a team when you, ha when you have children and your children are watching all of the drunk fans in the sta sta stadium making fun of your ethnicity. You know, um, we don't have teams that say the, um, um, you know, Chicago Caucasians or the um, New York Negroes or the, um, you know, um, Pittsburgh Popes, you know, but we have the Kansas City Chiefs. We've had the, you know, Washington Redskins. We've had, um, you know, all, all of these, uh, these names. And, and, it, and I always say, if it's such an honor, and if people are honoring us, give us a break for a while and go honor yourselves. Go name a team after your ethnicity, or go name a team after your religion. And just give us a break. If it's such a good honor, you guys do it for a while. We've had it for all these years. And we're, we're happy to just let you have it, you know. So I think what allies can do and what other people can do is when you see it, call it out um, and teach the young people 
the, the true history, you know, um, the, the, you know, not just, uh, you know, how the native people, you know, planted corn beans and squash or had Thanksgiving, you know, with the turkeys and, and made everyone a meal. Talk about really what happened at Thanksgiving and how many tribes were annihilated um, and, uh, or how when the first boats came, the Europeans didn't even know what foods out in the forest were edible and they starved, you know, it's called the lost colony. And if it hadn't have been for native people saying, well, you know, we're gonna show them how to exist, they wouldn't have even made it because they didn't know what berry was poisonous and which one wasn't. So there's lots of, um, there's lots and lots of groundwork that can be done from, from learning, from history, from um, sports teams, from mascots, from derogatory words, um, all the way to the health disparities and the way that native people are, um, are treated um, in, in today's society. I mean, a lot of people don't know that to, to settle some of the battles and the, and the um, controversies that were happening back in the 1800s, treaties were signed. And in those treaties, things like we will give you health care because they may have had a bunch of wounded native people out on that battlefield. And so we will fix your wounds. We will make sure that you have food because we've killed off all of your way of life, whether it was from the buffalo or forcing the five civilized tribes to walk the trail of tears out of the southeast where they were farmers, et cetera, and then put them in a place like Oklahoma, which was very hard to grow what they were accustomed to growing. So when you, when you have all of those type of uh, atrocities that, you know, from, from uh, you know, making them walk the trail of tears or, or telling them that, um, you know, they, they had to give up what is now Mount Rushmore, which is the holiest site for the Black Hills, for, for, for the tribes of that area. And they did it in treaties those treaties now become the Indian Health Service. You know, they've evolved because back then, you know, there weren't hospitals. But to honor the treaty, we have the Indian Health Service. But the way that um, the, the society and the government administration still get around it is they're underfunded. And so they're, you know, we're supposed to have a certain amount of services that are guaranteed by a treaty, but they're underfunded. Or for instance, the Black Hills were never to be touched. They were to be remained part of uh, a sacred sites for those tribes. And then they put president's heads on them, you know? Or, or they hold rallies at the foothills um, like they did this summer and then arrest the natives who protested against them being in that sacred spot. And they arrest them with felony charges, you know? And so these are, these are all things that, that are happening. Um, and I want to believe it's out of the ignorance of our allies of people of color that they're not standing up and speaking out and fighting for things as much as, as we would like them to be. When we see the militarization of police that has gone on with the protests over these past five, five months, we need to also remember that is what they did 
to the protesters at Standing Rock, you know, in 2015 and 2016. I mean, they hose these people in the middle of the winter, you know, and expected them to survive as their clothing was turning to ice. You know, there's a big protest going on in Hawaii on Mauna Kea, you know, where they have to build one more telescope for, uh, you know, academic astrologers to look at the stars when there are already 13 telescopes that exist on this sacred site. So Native peoples participated in the protests this summer, especially with it starting in Minneapolis, because Minneapolis is a birthplace of a lot of Native activity. But it would be nice to see the same reciprocity given from our brothers and sisters of color when it's time to speak up for Native issues. And we all know that the numbers could have been much, much larger for an incident like Standing Rock or for what's now going on at Mauna Kea. Because, you know, we do consider our Native Hawaiians our Indigenous brothers and sisters as well. Michelle, thank you so much. I mean, I could talk to you for another 10 hours, so we may <laughs> issue another <laughs> invitation. Well, thank you. I'm sure back. I only glossed over some parts of things, and, and I'm glad that you were, have an audience that was willing to at least listen to this much. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Michelle, would you feel comfortable if any activists who are out there who want to gain some additional words of wisdom or insight from you, any sure. way for them to reach out to you? Sure. They can reach me um, by email is probably the best is um, nativelit at gmail.com. And um, it's just nativelit, L-I-T, at gmail.com. And, um, and that's probably the best way to reach me. Um, otherwise, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other, pounding the pavement and speaking up. In fact, I'm pretty much yelling um, whenever I get a chance to. Please keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. You're such an inspiration. Thank you again, Michelle Leonard, for joining us as a special guest speaker oh, on Woke Isn't Enough. Thank you for having me. Take care, everyone. Stay safe.